This is a Federal News Network podcast. Some significant movement is expected on infrastructure spending in the U.S. House this week. Lawmakers plan to vote on a more than $500 billion water and transportation package. That's just one piece of House Democrats' ambitions for infrastructure this year, and it's separate from the approach the White House and the Senate are discussing. To bring us up to speed on the Hill, we're joined by Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director for Bloomberg Government. Okay, Lauren, so it sounds like we have uh, an an infrastructure deal, at least between the White House and the Senate, but the House appears to still kind of be doing its own thing. What's what's coming up this week? Right. These are two things moving on separate tracks. So there was the big announcement last week on Thursday with President Biden having met with five Republicans and five Democrats who had been huddled trying to come up with a bipartisan plan that they could try and move forward with. There was a deal reached last week. Um, It would provide $579 billion in new money um, over the next five years. And they also look at $1.2 trillion over the next eight years. So that bill is still being drafted. Um, It was more of an agreement in principle, a framework, than an actual piece of legislation. That's a little bit different than what we'll see in the House this week which is a fully written 1500 plus page bill that was put together by the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee that makes up the routine reauthorization of highway transit and rail programs that's usually done every five years or so. Um, That bill, when it came out of committee, mostly had Democratic support. We may see a vote this week that's mostly, again, Democrats. Um, But they said that they were going to proceed with this, notwithstanding the bipartisan deal, because there's still interest among Democrats in a separate piece of legislation in the future that might be over and above what this bipartisan plan was. So there's a lot of moving pieces in this infrastructure debate. We'll see a lot of focus this week, though, on the big House bill, which could be part of it. Um, Maybe some of that will make it into the bipartisan plan, and maybe we'll see it uh, separately in different legislation later in the year. Yeah, I I was just going to ask, do we know how the Senate would treat these, these distinct issues, the surface transportation and the water issue, would they consider that to be part of the agreement that they reached with the White House or would they move that legislation potentially separately? We'll have to see because two committees have already written their parts. The Environment and Public Works Committee had a highway bill that it reported out and then the Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee had its safety provisions that it had put out. We were still waiting for the transit provisions, which are from yet another committee, the Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committee. And and then a fourth part that also will be key is how to pay for it. And the Senate Finance Committee would have looked at that. So uh, there's still more work to be done on that portion. And the pay fors or the offsets part of this discussion is going to be huge. The bipartisan deal did have a list of offsets that everyone had agreed to. Um, Things like extending customs users fees, looking at some financing proposals, um, fixing UI, closing the tax gap and and claiming savings from that. So there's some money there. Um, What hadn't been progressing is kind of an agreement on how to pay for the standard surface transportation bill. Um, That's been an issue because the gas tax was last raised in the early 90s, hasn't kept pace with inflation. And of course, the cars we drive today use less fuel or more fuel efficient. And then some cars don't even use fuel because they're electric vehicles now. So um, there's still a longer term question that lawmakers will wrestle with about how to pay for what was a user finance system. Um, So that that hasn't been decided yet. And we'll be watching for elements of the debate going forward on that. And back on the House side, another noteworthy thing about this bill is it's uh, one of the first big representations of the return of earmarks. I think there already are some at the committee level. Could this bill balloon to an even larger size once uh, once it starts 
uh, getting amended if it's going to get amended on the floor? Well, they'll probably try to keep the earmarks within the total. And that's usually what they do is look at some of these programs that have allocations and try to carve out the money at the congressional level rather than letting formulas do the work or letting state governments, once they get this money, um, use that there. So I think the size of the bill may stay where it is, but um, we'll be watching those earmark lists closely as the House deals with this and then maybe in eventual conference versions as well. And moving on to another issue in the House this week, understand there's going to be votes on a measure that would enhance the authority of inspectors general, stick up for them in various other ways. What's going on there? That's right. This is a bill that cobbles together several different ideas, and the proponents of it say that it responds to things they didn't like about IGs under the Trump administration in particular. One of the things it would do is make it harder to get rid of an IG. It could only be for specified reasons, and you'd have also have to provide notice to Congress. It's also trying to get the president to act sooner on vacancies when they come open so that um, IG offices don't sit without a confirmed or full leader for, for too long. Um, and so this bill is you know, kind of a good government package of things. Not everyone likes it though. Um, one of the things that US attorneys didn't like is a proposal that would shift um, who handles cases against attorneys within the DOG. It would shift it from the Office of Professional Responsibility ability over to um, to the IG of the Justice Department. That idea wasn't popular with them. And, and I don't know that this is going to get the kind of wide support it might if some of these individual proposals had come up. But um, that's an interesting bill to watch this week. Historically, support for inspectors general in the federal government has been a pretty bipartisan issue, but there are some Republican detractors on this particular measure. What What are kind of their objections? Well, I think it's just some of it is they think it's overly politicizing some aspects of um, what IGs and what presidents need to do in terms of notifying Congress. Um, they, they've even said that you're you're kind of one of their arguments. This is all about what happened in the Trump administration and maybe not um, the, the best course of action when dealing with these offices. Um, but there some of the kernels here do have bipartisan support, like you mentioned. Some of these provisions have companions in the Senate that are sponsored by Charles Grassley, who's been a longtime backer of inspectors general. So um, I, I think there there's elements here that have bipartisanship, but sometimes it's how these things get packaged that can uh, cause them to lose some support. And that might be the case here. And meanwhile, in our last couple of minutes before we let you go, bring us up to speed on the appropriations process. Where do things stand at the moment? I know everybody's getting a slightly late start because of the late release of the White House budget this year. Right. So the, the House side, at least, has started full bore on this. Um, last week, they started subcommittee action on four of the 12 bills, and they're going to pick up with more this week and try to get a handful through not just subcommittee, but the full committee, so that when the House goes out on its two-week break, it will have made some progress on this very important task. Um, what we've seen so far is a lot of increases on the domestic side, which we anticipated that was what the Biden administration had proposed in its plan, and the Democrats in Congress are following suit. Maybe not exactly what the Biden administration wanted everywhere, but kind of directionally, that's where we see this going. Uh, one of the questions still hanging over this is what the defense non-defense split will be when you see all the bills roll together. Um, congressional Republicans had urged a bigger increase for defense than the Biden administration asked for. 
And even among Democrats, there's a desire to make sure that the defense number hits a certain amount and that that not be reduced in favor of giving more to domestic programs. So um, th there, there's still a challenge here when they sit down to write a budget resolution, if they need to square up this defense versus non-defense, the old guns versus butter debate, if you will, um, how that's going to stack up, how you win sufficient support among Democrats where there are calls for cuts, but also calls for increased spending on the defense side. So um, we've seen these individual bills move out. Those will continue to happen, but cobbling together the full picture and seeing how House ideas mesh with Senate bills that have to have some Republican support to get through. Um, it's, it's a long process. I doubt it'll be done by September 30th. We'll probably be looking at some short-term funding extensions well into the beginning of fiscal 2022. Um, but these early steps show that um, they're getting to work on this, again, very important task. All right. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks as always, Lauren. Thank you. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until 
middle school being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give 
to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.